everyone. Uh, ben and I are going to speak on the Intergram 4. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all the types for Lent and Siri, so we'll kind of do a deep dive into our type, but with connecting points to different types. Um, but Ben, could you start us off with like a overview of Intergram, why we're doing it for Lent, that type of thing? Yeah, so when we're talking about as a staff, talking about Lent, uh, one of the things we realized is when we were like five years ago when we started as a church, we were just a bunch of young 20-something young professionals just trying to give up alcohol for Lent. And that was kind of all we tried doing. Uh, but it's deeper than that. And I think <clears throat> this idea of Lent is deprivation, that you give something up so you realize that God actually hates you. I'm just kidding. But this, but this idea that you actually like give up something or maybe you like work at your, you know, at your kind of salvation a little bit during this period is actually not the thing. The thing about Lent is disrupting your rhythms or changing something up or just creating a bit of space in your schedule so that you might actually have stillness, solitude, silence and find out that God actually does love you. Uh, so that's kind of the whole purpose of Lent. And then as we were thinking about what we wanted to do, and we've obviously been talking a lot about racism and privilege and these huge institutional things, but to dive into like personal stuff, like ourselves, uh, and to realize that as we kind of start to get to know ourselves to the Enneagram, that both our darkness and our light sides emerge and that we kind of understand ourselves more fully and hopefully that uh, not only learn to love ourselves, but learn to love others and have more compassion. Great. And do you want to clarify like how to think about the Enneagram? There are nine types. I don't know if we want to get into that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, who's done the test so far? Has anyone done the test? Cool. Who did the Enneagram Institute test? The, main, the $12 one. Okay, great. So when you got that, you probably realized you got a bunch of numbers, and it's tempting to go, oh, I'm a one, I'm a three, I'm a seven, I'm a nine. So uh, what actually the test does is tell you your main, the, the, the top couple. So you actually probably should look at those top two or three numbers if they're like above, the scores above and beyond all the other ones, and start to do some reading around that. Because you basically have, even though we have all of these traits inside of us, and yes, we can see lots of different colors inside of us, that you do have one primary type. But then on either side, so if you're a four, all the numbers on either side, so you're three or you're five, are your wings, and I think... Um, we'll get into that a bit more. Yep. And then you also have numbers of integration and disintegration, which means where you go in health and where you go in unhealth. So you may actually find out, like I did when I first tested, that the number I come up with, which is a two, was actually my unhealthy number. So I tested into my unhealthy, and that kind of sent me to crisis. So. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Um, a bit of introduction as to who the type fours are, and I think may, I could talk, maybe I'll do it through a story, because mm -hmm. the feedback we got is that we need to tell more stories for a second <laughs> service. Um, so fours are sort of individualists. They want to be seen as different and distinct, as having kind of a unique identity. They tend to be creative, tend to see beauty in things, significance in things. But because we're in the heart centers, we want to be recognized as individuals by other people. We want still want to be belong and be part of that group. And so, classic example for me when I'm thinking about uh, myself, I was, I think, eight or nine years old, and I was really upset with my parents. We were having a big conflict. So I decided the best way to resolve it was to announce that I was running away, and so that my parents would really understand like how special I was to the family and mourn like my loss. So uh, I made a big deal about it. I like packed a toothbrush. I like consulted with my mom as to what pajamas to pack. You know, something. <laughs> I put it all in my Lion King backpack. And this was in Malaysia, so things were in like super safe. So I thought maybe my parents would be concerned about kidnapped by pirates from Indonesia. Um, so I left the house for like a couple hours. Obviously, it was all like. A show, and I came back hoping to see like my parents in tears, uh, frantically calling the police. But mom's just like making dinner. <laughs> my dad was like reading the Bible. <laughs> They're like, "Okay, you're back. Do you want like food?" <laughs> um, so I think 
now the adult version of that is me, I think, getting into conflicts with people, but then withdrawing or sulking kind of in a corner, uh, wanting people to call me back in and putting the onus on other people to do that. So part of my work in becoming healthier is learning not to be so melodramatic, uh, but to reach out to other people and reconnect and re-engage. So f that's a story for me that comes into mind as a four. I don't know if you have anything similar. Yeah, I grew up in an extremely conservative church. If none of you have heard my story before, uh, I almost could have said it was like cult-like. Um, and one of the good things about actually growing up in that church is that we preached that we were distinctly unique, right? That we were different to every single other person. We weren't like other Christians. We had the truth, is what we called it. Uh, and so that actually worked for me for quite some time, except for the fact that once I started getting into my teenage years, I was not allowed to go to any parties at school. I wasn't allowed to go on school camps, any, any other things. So I wasn't allowed to really integrate into the world. And so something there kind of got me to that place of like, oh my stars, I'm missing out on things. I have serious FOMO because like there are ordinary people and I'm not allowed to be in their life. Uh, and that kind of creates that crisis um, and probably still does to a certain degree of just fear of missing out on something. And I felt like I was missing out on, on the world because I had this kind of church thing. Yeah. And then to talk a little about wings, I think Ben and I both have separate wings. So my wing is the wing five, which is a pretty strong wing for mine. It's the investigator. Um, they desire competence and knowledge and understanding. And so the way it kind of informs my dominant type, type four, is that, um, you know, as someone who is a writer by trade, uh, it's very important to me that the ideas that put out into, world, into the world, if it has my name attached to it, is authentically related to my life mission statement. So um, a good example is I'm a ghostwriter and one of my clients, he was like, uh, he was a military veteran. I was like, cool, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll write stuff about war, what have you, just like pay me something. Um, and, and then he was like, oh, I think I want it to be a co-written project. I was like, my name's gonna be on this book. Uh, and all of a sudden I kind of went to kind of a little crisis of to like, how do I, like, how do I make sure, can the values of American military align with my values? Like, all that kind of melodramatic stuff about, because it was, I was very concerned about having this cohesive life narrative that I was living out through the ideas and that I was putting out into the world. So, and you have a different wing, so you could talk about that. Yeah, so I have a three wing, which is like the performer or the achiever. Uh, and so how that works for me as a musician is, is I'm trying to do my best to be like authentically like creative, but also stand out from the pack. Uh, so kind of obviously one of the ways in which I have an Australian accent, so that kind of works for me here in, in America. But trying to find those unique selling points, every time I used to go to like, you know, like using business and you hear that unique selling point thing, I was always trying to find that, that thing, right? So, and oftentimes that meant for me was trying to find, like make up a voice maybe, kind of find something like breathy and cool, like all the Christian pop stars, or like trying to find something that was unique that you know that was kind of always my selling point and that in the three wing the actually contradictory nature of my personality is really strong so I simultaneously want to be like different from everybody else and I want to belong and those and I can they can be like two minutes apart uh, so that like swing wildly in between those emotions yeah and the three I see some laughing over there <laughs> I don't know if we have any fours in the room any other fours or threes fives um, but a three, I think, is desires admiration. Yes. So I think admired for unique voices. Your singing voice, I think, is part of how it plays out. And yeah, I think I definitely have a strong three, too. I think America is basically three. Yes. Um, but um, that's an aside. Uh, biblical, let's talk about the Bible. Um, what biblical characters or passages kind of really speak to you as a four? Yeah, so I grew up really admiring King David, and I think it's kind of an obvious thing because, like, hey, he's a songwriter, and he wrote the Psalms, and it's all very feelings, and it's all very good. But there were two, or actually three characteristics that really stuck out to me 
that really uh, spoke to me as a, as a child, and one of them was there is a man of war. So even though as fours I'm very conflict averse, at the same time my personality I either want you to like to love me or hate me. Don't be ambivalent because that's just not going to work for me. Because if you hate me, actually you're going to probably think about me. So uh, <laughs> I, so I think that kind of man of war, that man of violence, really speaks to me. And then the second part uh, was if most people in the room who are women will understand that King David had a problem with with women. There is a womanizer, and that definitely spoke to me in my teenage years. I was never single from the time I was 11 years old. And I think part of that for like romanticism of just trying to find the one person uh, and find that missing piece or that other missing part was very much uh, part of my story. Uh, and then the third part is he was a huge nonconformist. Uh, if you're in the Jewish tradition, you are only really supposed to like pray in the temple and do certain things. Whereas the Bible goes out of its way multiple times to say that David prayed on the hilltops of Baal. Like he went into like pagan temples and worshipped God. And the Bible then says that David is a, God, a man after God's own heart. So I think what's interesting about that is he broke these rules uh, and, and yet he's still kind of one of the most venerated kind of uh, characters of the Bible of faith. And so I think it's okay for you to find God outside the lines. That's how it kind of worked for me in my faith journey is like, you don't just have to find God in church. God is everywhere. God is in all things. Yeah, and I think different Enneagram types, I think, latch on to different visions of God as well, images of God. So I think, you know, type one, you latch on to God's uh, moral perfection, his law and order. Um, if you're a type nine, maybe God's peacemaking, his kind of bridge building. Um, type six, God's loyalty and steadfastness. So I think for as a four, uh, what I really think of is Psalm 139 where in the beginning it says, you have known me, you have searched me, you uh, know when I rise, when I leave, you're acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, you know me. And I think the image of God that I particularly latch on to is uh, sort of God as an intimate friend uh, or intimate lover or what have you, someone who sort of knows you and understands you completely. And I think the, the beauty of understanding the types in part is that we have different by understanding each other's types, we have better understanding of how each other relates to God and how each other sees God and thus is, are able to see God more fully and completely. So that Psalm 139 for me is the biblical passage. Um, but I wanted to ask also about your experience growing up as a, someone dominant in type four in the church uh, a little bit. I mean, I guess we talked about that already. So maybe talk to me about... Um, doctrines of the church, sin, holiness, how do you relate to that as a type four? And ask that just because um, I think different personalities shape the theology we teach. I've grown up along the lines of a lot of my dad as a pastor who's a type three. It was all about like achieving things for God, you know, getting the numbers in terms of evangelism, church planting. So that was very much the theology that came forth from the pulpit. So I'm, and fours, I think, tend to not be found in church so much because they tend to be nonconformist. I think fives are similar. They like you know, realize that evolution is real and like, what is this church thing anyway? Um, like they need, you know, intellectual foundations for their faith. So I'm curious as a four perspective, from four perspective, how did you relate certain doctrines that you were taught? Yeah, so I think in the church I grew up in, um, there's a verse in Jeremiah, I think it's uh, Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And that was like a central passage. Like basically you were taught that you were really crappy, basically, that you were never gonna be any good, you, you know, that you basically had to debase yourself before God in order to kind of win God's approval. That, that idea started falling apart for me pretty early, I think. Even as a kid, I think I was sitting in church and started reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah and realizing, like, I don't know if that's the whole story. And so I think I started going back to this idea of, like, our holy idea as a four is origin, um, that we, we come from God. We are, essence, in essence, God. We're all interconnected. Um, and so 
this, this idea I was taught that I was supposed to be separate from the world because the world was actually going to, like, you know, destroy me even worse than I already was and so I had to stay, like, distant from people. Started falling apart because I'm like, no, I believe everyone is, like, loved and is known. Um, and what that kind of led me back to was that whole Garden of Eden story where we kind of get thrown out of the garden and separated from God. And I think a lot of that is, is more about our shame rather than, like, God actually being, like, angry at us. So that whole, uh, the doctrine of... Um, Help me out, what's the... Original sin. Yeah, the original sin really started falling apart for me when I found, like, Rob Bell in my 20s and was like, oh, wow, like, we're created good. Like, that's where we should start from as people. We should start from a place of being loved and being created good. And that was a central idea that really started to kind of speak to my full nature. Yeah. But you but I think also, I would probably the Enneagram ones in the room will also like to point out the ways in which we are fallen and the ways in which we deviate from perfection. And so I think having the multiplicity of like the emphasis we bring to us to who God is and who we are is very helpful. Yep. Um, for me, I think when I think of holy origin, um, I think it's taken on new meaning for me sort of in the past couple of years um, as, you know, I mean, race and culture and identity play a lot into the ways our personality kind of manifests. So I, I tend, this, I, I hate, I, take some issue with the distinction of like epiphanies, like systemic stuff and lens, like individual stuff, because I think it all, is all connected. So for me, I think when I think of holy origin, um, it's, it's been particularly meaningful um, because in the past, uh, I guess, three, five years, more or less, um, coming out to my parents has not been a very easy process for them or for me. And so for me, grappling and accepting the fact that there are people who aren't, not going to show up to the wedding, not, probably not going to be super involved in whatever family I started to create, um, has been a, a, a process of me kind of coming to the fact that whatever bonds we've had are sort of severed and that there's this wound that kind of is created and that I am ultimately displaced from my biological origins and my cultural, ancestral kind of lineage and origins. And as someone who you know, for us tend to over-identify with their wounds or their flaws and to search for, like, kind of significance in their story. So for me, it's helpful to think about holy origins because I then can latch my individual story into a larger story. It's like, okay, I may be displaced from my biological origin, but I still am connected to, like, a holy origin, that there's a divine source that I'm connected to and that we are all connected to. Um, I think the gift of force is to be able to help people recognize that we all have holy origins and that to never lose sight of that, even if things get in the way. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about disintegration and integration. So those are the last two columns uh, to the right, and Ben alluded to it. Can you talk to me about how this integration and integration play out for a type form? Yeah, so this is the reason why I'm actually passionate about the Enneagram is a couple of years ago, we started talking about this and stuff. I mean, the Liturgist podcast, which we share with you guys, that was kind of when I first came across uh, the Enneagram. And so we did the, the test as a staff, and I tested as a two, and I still actually test as a two to this day. Uh, when I tested as a two, I was like, holy crap, my life is over. Uh, and, and, and I really, it's it sent me... It's not a diss on twos, but... Yeah, no, we'll no it's not a diss on twos, but I think what I saw was this, <laughs> yeah... It, yeah, there's, there's no bad Enneagram type, right? You don't fail the Enneagram. But for me, what it, what it touched was a nerve where I realized I was really unhealthy. And so at the time, I, was, uh, I had just come out of a massive musical collaboration in which I had sort of done everything for the other person. I'd written the songs, I'd been managing them. Uh, I kind of did everything possible, like helping, you know, kind of market the whole thing, uh, asking a lot of you guys to come to the, the gigs. And when that fell apart and fell apart quite suddenly and awkwardly, 
uh, it sent me into a spin. I was actually having panic attacks. So I was kind of realizing that I just lost my sense of self entirely in this collaboration. Um, and so that kind of unhealthy t four, which goes to a two, which goes to a helper, what I was doing was trying to get affirmation and the attention, the affection to tell that person that, that I was awesome. So they, they would tell that to me instead of actually having that kind of sense of self. You know, so that's how the two disintegration kind of worked uh, for me and still does that I find myself at times. And I think honestly in church, right, we preach a doctrine of self-sacrificial love that Jesus gave it all. And Mirit spoke about this excellently. You should go back and listen to that. But I think the message is too, as you need to know, is like Jesus died on the cross, you don't have to, right? Your self-service doesn't have to go all the way through to you losing yourself. You are just as valuable helping, but you can do it in a healthy kind of way. So hmm. that's what you probably need to know. That's deep. Um, and just to be clear, the involvement into two is to adopt the unhealthy version of two. It's not let you become a two and two is bad. But um, for me, as I think about what integration looks like to what's becoming a one, so fours tend to believe that we are kind of above the law or like the rules don't apply to us. So, you know, I, I don't really wear seat belts a ton. Uh, I, I cut in line sometimes and I don't really care. Um, you drive extra slow in the old fast lanes while the people behind you are going insane. Oh, no, uh, that I am scared of being killed by other, pass by other drivers, so I try not to piss off drivers. Um, but I, I think for me, it's also played out racially. Uh, I remember coming to America and realizing like there was this hierarchy of who's cool and not cool, and it was racially based. So like um, Asian kids were definitely like kind of near the bottom. They were not athletic. They were nerdy, like math and science. And I remember feeling like I wanted to prove that I was distinct. I was not that type of Asian. You know, I can play sports, I like books and philosophy or literature or what have you. And it was kind of my way of saying that the rules of like my race don't apply to me. I'm like above that. And so it's taken me, I mean, it's been a process, but I think becoming a one and becoming a little bit more sort of clear in sense of reality instead of being um, defined by emotions has me in a process of realizing that actually sometimes the rules do apply to me. You know, I'm always will be read a certain way, um, and that by like judging like my people, so to speak, I'm just alienating myself up for them in order to elevate my own ego. So it's been helpful, I think, for me to do like various kinds of um, Asian American activism because it's and that's me kind of becoming a bit more of the one and being more of a moral reformer, uh, not just for like society, but I think for my own personal growth as well. Yes. Let's talk about Lent and Lenten practices. Um, why don't you start and talk about, I, I can go into the types of Lenten practices for each of the clan clusters of types. For the two, threes, and fours, it's going to be solitude that is our main kind of thing we work through. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more how you're doing solitude for Lent? Yes, yeah, so two, three, fours, we're very relational, right? We're about other people, we're about feelings. Um, and so it may seem counterintuitive to you. And I'm, I'm a massive extrovert, right? I think when I first met Sarah, I would actually leave, like that was in the days of like ICQ, Anyone remember those days? You know, I would leave, it's, I don't know, it's AIM or, or those little like online chat rooms if you didn't have that. I would actually leave mine on all night with the sound on in case someone t like actually like at 2, 2 a.m. was like, hey, I'm having a crisis. My girlfriend broke up with me. I'm like, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Um, <clears throat> so I, I have a, a trouble so disconnecting from people. Uh, but over the last few years and definitely kind of my, my wife's a huge introvert and it really has helped me understand that I actually have worth and space away from other people. Uh, and so... Uh, I, when I wake up in the morning, I generally kind of get all my emails, social media, I check all that before I'm even vertical. Uh, I like to connect with the world and see what's going on. But then right after that, we disconnect, we go have coffee, we walk the dog, and then I sit down and watch Nashville. So all, all those things are a way to then... I thought he was going to be like, and I sit down and pray. 
<laughs> Nashville is prayer, what can I say? <laughs> um, and, and so this idea of, of separating myself from people is very similar when I was a teenager. I used to go to school, get like all hyped up in the emotions and you know, all that kind of stuff, and come home and sit on the piano and, and, and for half an hour to an hour just play. And, and that has alleviated me a little bit from the sense of guilt because I was never really good at prayer and I was like, grew up in church. But that idea of disconnecting from people and just spending time like separately from other people was important. So I think that's probably what you kind of need to do. So for Lent, one of the things we're trying to do is around about five o'clock, six o'clock, uh, Alexa goes, carpe diem. And the lights actually go down and that's our, our, our yoga you know we're supposed to go and do our yoga thing so what's that what that is it's slightly different for Sarah for a one she gets really obsessed with the task it needs to be finished it needs to be perfected and she will sit there for way too many hours kind of getting that thing done uh, I will get more caught up in emotions I'll be frustrated at people I'll be angry I'll be emotional and for both of us to actually interrupt that and to stop and to breathe and to kind of do some yoga and to kind of just disconnect and step away has been really important. So I think Lent is all about this practice of, of upending your rhythm so that you can kind of get something in between, get a breath, get a bit of God, get a little bit of time and space. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, just a quick overview for the body types, the eight, nine ones, uh, the, the, I think the Lenten practice, I believe, this is from the Sacred Enneagram, a book by Chris Hewitt, uh, is stillness, because eight, nines, and ones tend to be in motion and moving and doing. The eights are fighting, the ones are fixing, the nines are like fleeing a little bit. Um, and so stillness and like rest, you don't have to fix or fight or flee. And for the five, six, and sevens, these are the head types. Um, the, your minds probably tend to be pretty overactive. Uh, fives is like figuring things out. Seven is like chasing like the next pleasure, planning for the next like thing. And six is like paralysis and anxiety a little bit. So finding still uh, silence specifically and quieting the chatter and finding the inner voice of God or and through yourself is I think I think the recommended Lenten practice and two, threes, and fours you've gotten to. My specific Lenten practice is um, to not share any more articles with my parents um, <laughs> because. I, and just to experience the article reading in solitude, because, I mean, you know, I like, as well as like meditation and prayer, but this is actually a lot harder, um, because I realized that by setting these articles of like, you know, my dad's a three-wing four, I think, so I'd be like, dad, read this article, you know, it shows that Asian Americans, 23% of us live under the poverty line, he'd be like, well, it's just those Asians who live in Flushing and like don't speak English. So it gets me very frustrated, but I have to, and by the reason why I'm frustrated is because as a four, by sharing these articles, I'm trying to help my parents better understand myself, right? understand my politics, understand my like, racial consciousness. And practicing solitude also means like letting go of me always trying to change them. I just basically talk about my parents also, all throughout the service. Um, <laughs> uh, hi, mom and dad. Uh, so that, it's a very concrete thing and it's actually very hard, but it's been a good practice to stop the instinctive response. Um, I think I, th that's, I think that's about it. Thank you guys for listening to us. Jonathan's going to lead us in a centering prayer. I if you have any pass questions, it off to me. yeah, oh, yeah. pass it off to you. Okay. <laughs> if you have any questions about the Instagram, just talk to us afterwards. Uh, shoot, you know, find us anytime. Yeah, so just remember all of this, uh, that last slide, Mike, if you want to just put that up there. All of this in Lent is designed so that we can actually confront false selves, right? We can confront those, as you said, the scripts, the things that just run around ourselves all the time. We can confront that and realize that that's not our, our true self. That to shed that kind of sense of ego, our attachment to our ideas, our attachment to who we are, and actually kind of live into the God-designed life. So I think we're going to take a few minutes. So if you kind of want to get yourself settled, put your feet flat on the floor. Um, if you want to close your eyes, take a deep breath.
couple of big deep breaths in, in through the mat, in through the nose, and out through the mouth. Check in with your body. Just kind of realize where you are today. Are you anxious? Are you afraid? Are you feeling melancholic? Are you feeling creaky from the weekend? Did you have too much to drink last night? Just check in with your body. Just realize where you are in this moment. And just check in with how you're feeling. Maybe just find that one word that comes up. Maybe there's just something that was said. Uh, Today, maybe it was just a word that's on the screen, something in your type that just stuck out to you. Find that one word. And then breathe through that word. Just breathe that word in, into your body. Breathe in what it means. If it's a positive word, breathing in that love and that affirmation. And if it's a negative word, just breathe it out again. Maybe take a second to hold uh, your holy idea about who God is. And to breathe through that. To know in this moment that you were created uh, in the image of God, in the perfect, perfect Imago Dei, that that thing, that thing that lives inside of you, the way you see God is yours intimately and individually, but also communally shared with every single person in this room, that it connects us. As we inwardly orient ourselves towards the table, I just want you to breathe in all the love that is here at the table through these symbols of the wafer and the juice which represents Jesus' blood. Breathe in this goodness, breathe in this love, and breathe out anything that just alienates you from this table, any guilt or shame or fear or alienation that you've experienced before at this table. Breathe in the fact that you are invited perpetually to this table, there's nothing that can stop you from getting close to God. And breathe out any sense of shame or separation. Just know in the moment, this moment, that you are loved always. 